This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside of this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. UFOs, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. Shall I tell you what I find beautiful about you? You are in charge of the best when things are worse. Sooner or later, though, you always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas. And I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, please make yourself at home. I want to thank you, Veritas member, for making Veritas possible. Please subscribe at VeritasRadio.com to listen to both segments of tonight's interview and all of our material. Tonight's special guest is Scott Stevens from WeatherWars.info. Scott is a renowned meteorologist who has researched chemtrails for years and will help us wake up a world in denial about this phenomenon. Scott Stevens is coming up next. And to get in touch with us for member support, media inquiries, you want to be a guest or are a whistleblower, there's a link for you by clicking on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. This is Michael Murphy, and you're listening to Veritas. Scott Stevens is an award-winning television weatherman who, a decade ago, began investigating the claims of then-Colonel Tom Bearden that North America was being subjected to full-time weather modification. During the course of that personal investigation, he was the first to discover the primary reason for the now-global chemtrail phenomena. During Scott's two-decade television career, he worked in Topeka, Kansas, Omaha, Nebraska, 
Tulsa, Oklahoma, Albany, New York, and Pocatello, Idaho. He is a principal with Blue Water Alchemy in the global project to bring about a shift of the human consciousness in concert with events surrounding 2012. And to learn more about Scott Stevens, visit his websites at weatherwars.info and bluewateralchemy.com. And directly from Crestone, Colorado, I'm honored and privileged to finally get Scott Stevens on to the show. Hello, Scott. Welcome. Well, Mel, it's, uh, it's good to be here th uh, this evening with you. Very good. It's great. It's great. And, you know, for weeks uh, we've been in contact and I told you that uh, once again, I probably in the last four years had a few people discuss chemtrails, but I haven't spoken to a meteorologist. So I'm very curious to know how somebody like you woke up one day and said, wait a second, what I'm reporting is not the real truth. Tell us more. Oh, boy. And, and, and Mel, it was not a wake up one day. <clears throat> was, this was an evolution that took years. Okay. You know, I, I, I was aware of the term chemtrail probably as early as 1998, and it wasn't for another five years before I understood the motive behind it. And there were so many hyperboles associated with the term chemtrail that I really didn't like to, to talk about it. Uh, and in beginning the research of Colonel Bearden, which was an offshoot of my, my keen interest in energy from the vacuum, zero-point energy, magnetic motorless uh, engines, that kind of free energy device, because I understood that if we went down that road, this planet's power structure would change, and that's how I thought I was going to get at it. But it was in looking at Colonel Bearden's work in probably 01 that I came across a sidebar on his site, which is chenier.org, C-H-E-N-I-E-R-E.org, and it talked about Soviet weather engineering. And uh, his webmaster had posted a few pictures of some curious-looking clouds that first didn't draw my attention, but the more I looked at them, I began to see some subtle things there. And it was when I bought my first digital camera in 2000 that I started framing the sky with a different set of eyes. And that's when over, over the next four years, you know, my conversion was a gradual process, but there was an aha moment. There was a day when there was before and, and, and afterwards. And that when was this? Well, it was the shape of the clouds. Um, I, I was looking at some high-resolution satellite imagery and uh, looking at a weak cold front on the 6th of June in, in Montana. And I, at the time, was in eastern Idaho. And I looked at some very regular structures in that cold front. I was aware of the ability of technology to create ha uh, drought, to enhance the strength of, of hurricanes. I was aware of that and had accepted that there was a place for that weaponry, for that agenda within the Earth's climate system. But what I wasn't prepared for was that this footprint of this technology was not focused on just the big major weather events, but in everyday affairs. And that's what happened to me on June 6 of 4. Is this satellite imagery of Montana, what caught my attention was a square cloud, a very square cloud cut out across a valley in which Billings, Montana is situated. And it was the shadow of the cloud because it was late in the day, so the shadow was cast off to the east. I see the shadow, I see the square cloud, and I go, mm-hmm. And then my attention looks a little more closely at the details. About 150 miles to the west, there was a void in this weak cold front in the shape of a square that was the exact same size as this 
what I, what I like to call a front-running square cloud. It looked like it had been cookie-cuttered out and placed ahead of time. And it was there that I had my stomach sink, and I literally felt sick for about 30 minutes. Because what I realized is that our planet's weather had essentially been digitized, that they could step weather via long-wave frequencies, via harp action, from one zone to the next zone to the next zone. What had still escaped my, let's say, comprehension is where the chemtrails fit in to this larger agenda. That had yet to come. So somebody like you, who was working on TV as a meteorologist reporting the weather, how is it that there are hundreds and hundreds of meteorologists out there who do not get out from their homes every morning, drive to work, look at the sky, and don't question it? That's a really good question. Because once I had, I had my aha, I wondered how I didn't see it sooner. I wondered how I didn't see the sky through this, this, this sudden awareness of what was going on. And I really thought, Mel, that as I began to step out there and, and share my information and begin to point out the anomalies, and I did that with my local weather service office in Pocatello. I did that with other meteorologists up at Channel 3 and, and, and Channel uh, 8 in eastern Idaho. I shared this information, but it was, as, it was a bridge too far. It was too much. They could acknowledge the anomalies. They could see that things were a little bit different. And they would say repeatedly, I've just never looked at things this way before. But grasping the whole picture was something that they had yet to accomplish. And if you're going to go out on a limb, especially in a public position, and you're going to answer these questions, you have to do it from a place of knowing. And they don't know. They don't understand completely. And that gives them a conviction to be able to deal with these questions. And that was not something I had. You know, I had begun to do interviews about scalar energy and weather modification in October of four. But it wasn't for another eight months before I would touch chemtrails. I wouldn't touch it because I didn't have a motive. I didn't understand why they were there. And that took a little more investigation, a little more time, a little more research. And honestly, spending a little money on gear. Because I, I, I knew that I was seeing waves in cloud shapes up there that didn't fit. They didn't fit with fluid dynamics. They didn't fit with how, how a fluid should appear and how, uh, how gases behave. There were shapes that were absolutely had some kind of resonance imprint. And I, was, I could see that. And I'm sure many millions of people can see those as well now. But it took buying four cameras, two computers, time-lapse software, and then essentially, you know, at the end of the day, sitting down and rendering all these movies and then examining them. And it wasn't until four months down the road, and I didn't do this to, to figure out the chemtrails. I did this to see if I, was, if I was missing something in how the clouds were behaving, because what I didn't like doing was getting up in front of an audience and apologizing for a wrong forecast. That's not a fun place to be. I was wrong, sorry, you know, but I, I was then, let's just say, inhibited either by self-censorship or by, by management from be, being able to explain why the forecast was wrong. And that was my frustration. Did you ever approach any colleagues or even management in the uh, TV stations where you worked at to, to express your, your, 
newfound knowledge, if you will. Oh, I, I was never shy about that. Never, never shy. In the market that I was in, I was I was number one or, or tied for number one for nine years running. And so I had, I had a, a position, I had a status, I had an audience. And so I, when I could one-on-one with, with the other, the, with the competition, essentially, I had no problem sharing these things, but you have to share an, a background of energy from the vacuum, the ability to, to deal with with time distortions and, and where does the energy come from to impact the thermodynamics of a hurricane or a cold front. We're talking copious amounts of energy. And this is this was too much for them. They're like, there's no way. There's no way that this can be done. And then we go back to it's best to begin very, very, very early on in a storm's progress rather than trying to manage an already mature storm. You could do it, but it takes a lot more attention and a lot more resources and your results are not nearly as as guaranteed as if you were to, say, work on a nor'easter eight, nine, ten days ahead of time, rather than trying to steer it when it's already looming on your doorstep. That's, that's, that's difficult. That's very difficult to do. So I know that every newsroom, every newsroom in this country and probably throughout Europe as well, have been presented with this word of, of chemtrails and what to do about the trails in the sky. And occasionally, newsrooms, news departments, science editors, weather people will go out and do a video essay of what's happened overhead. They'll call the FAA. They'll call the local military bases. They'll hit those contacts that they think should have the answer for what's going on up there. And they all come back and say, it's not us. It's not us. We don't know. And so then that's where the story ends. It's curious. It's odd. But we don't know. We don't know. And that's exactly what I've been through in the past few years. Scott calling, as you say, the local Air Force bases, the FAA, even the EPA. And I've heard from people at the EPA who have told me that they have been told, drop it. Don't go yeah. there. Even people. I know people. I even have relatives who are ranking, high-ranking members of, of major airlines. And that is one Two things in this specific airline. They say to the employees, do not ask what crashed at the Pentagon, number one. And number two, do not ask about chemtrails. Apparently, there's a, uh, a, a silent way to silent pilots. And that's another question. With so many hundreds of planes that we see all the time, why hasn't a pilot come forward? Could it be that these planes may be remotely controlled? I, that's my opinion. Uh, because I see aircraft that are keenly interested in intercepting other chemtrail formations at very precise locations. And it is impossible to get commercial planes at those locations at the proper, honestly, second. I mean, this is a highly orchestrated ballet in the sky. And I, I think they're drones. I think we absolutely have our civilian fleet. They may do some particular adding to the atmosphere but as as far as the marking trails the ones that are persistent and remain in the sky for long periods of time i think we have an entirely different fleet and the number of those planes may at time equal the civilian fleet that is our that is airborne it 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 it, it's it's high And, and my biggest question is where's the ground operations for those and that's that's what i'm still working on is where do, are those planes serviced? And, and where's the money? If, 
Well, I don't think the money's ever an issue. I really don't. When you've got a, a banking system and a shadow banking system, uh, the way ours is set up, I don't think money's an issue. You know, when you when you have cases of, of, of billions or trillions of dollars of bearer bonds showing up around the globe now and again, and all oh, the fake, all oh, the fraud, you know, and, and they're dated 1934 and they're obscene sums, you know, then then there is there is slush. There is a back spigot coming out of the Fed that feeds Boeing, feeds Lockheed Martin, that feeds Dow Chemical, that feeds uh, Honeywell, that feeds the military industrial complex in all of these other agendas that are that are happening. And so I don't think money is an issue. You can keep the two the two streams completely separate. And apparently they've been able to do that for some time. You know, when I go to other countries, and, and recently I reported this going to uh, the beaches of Mexico with my family, all of a sudden, and this happens all the time, this is a, a small fishing village. All of a sudden you see the crisscross patterns down there. Is If Mexico is a sovereign country, why is this allowed? Because I really don't think they have the, the capital to be funding these planes crisscrossing the skies. No, I, I'm sure Mexico does not. Um, but you know, Mexico. I, I see them. You know, th these trails will go from from Texas into Mexico, California into Baja, and deeper into Mexico all yeah. the time, all the time. So uh, we we could be looking at what was termed the Open Skies Accord, and maybe that was the the public mechanism that allowed the Western powers access at will to fly over these sovereign nations. What has concerned me is the appearance of these flights in South America during the past five years. And I'm sure Chile and Uruguay and Paraguay and Bolivia, Argentina and Brazil were not actively signing up to have this activity show up. And, and so what prompted these nations to essentially kneel at this power and submit? And I wonder if, since we know they've got directed energy weapons, maybe... Maybe the Chilean earthquake, maybe the Haitian earthquake, maybe these big earthquakes are ultimatums. Maybe they're acts of blackmail to get these countries to submit. Because in, and there, there really isn't a counter. And how do you explain to your population, uh, sorry, we're going to open the skies. We've just had a 9.2 earthquake. You know, we've got 2,000 people dead. You know, a city's in rubble, you know, and we do really don't want this to happen again. So, you know, the, the planes and, and these powers that be are now working our skies as well. My goodness. I, I had no idea that you actually went deeper into the rabbit hole. So, haha, <laughs> we're going to take the show many places. You mentioned directed energy weapons. I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Judy Wood and her oh, work. She's brilliant. She's brilliant. Okay. She was one of the first persons to name your name and your research to me, by the way. It, but I wanted to ask you, since you are a meteorologist, Hurricane Aaron in 2001. I don't mean to deviate from the game trails, which is tonight's subject, but Hurricane Aaron at Category 3, all the way east of New York City. We know what happened in last week, Hurricane Sandy, not even a Category 1, and we see the damage it caused, and they had to Tell people in advance, Hurricane Aaron being Category 3, they did not announce it, at least the majority of the TV channels there. Tell me what you yeah. learned about that. Well, this this was kind of before my awareness was, was on these issues. Um, and for me, because I was in the western United States, and, it, and Aaron was never a threat to my audience that I had responsibility for, it was simply, 
another Atlantic hurricane that would stay out in the open. Right. And, and, I, and I made no association between it and 9-11. That was something that came up years later. And was like, ah, uh, okay, you know, what? What's the connection? Why? Why is Aaron in even in any way relevant to to the Twin Towers? And that's where I had been for quite some time. I thought, hey guys, you're just trying to make you know more coincidences into something bigger than it really is. Um, and, and so that's kind of where I've been. I, I understand that it is a sink of power. You know, you've got this massive etheric vortex, you know, rotating out there, and that power can be can be tapped. And uh, but I also kind of have the opinion that if you're able to draw energy from the vacuum, the storm may be irrelevant. You may have the technology on board a jumbo jet, a white circling 747 over over uh, the 9/11 scene that can do all of those things, or lower orbiting you know satellites, satellites can do those things. You know, so I don't. I'm not completely sold on the need to have Aaron in place. And if they did, then there it was. And it was it was a tool that they could have drawn energy from. But why not tell the people though? Why, if you have a, a hurricane so close to New York City, why not tell the people? Um, I, I'm sure the National Hurricane Center was running their typical advisories, running their hurricane uh, recon planes. I'm sure that surveillance was there. Now I don't know why the media wouldn't share that information with the public. Anybody who had you know any sense of curiosity would know where to go get the information on Aaron. I mean, it's there. It's publicly available, you know, National Hurricane Center or NHC.gov. You know, it's there. And so maybe it was just that there were other stories that were more important than a hurricane that was not going to have any impact on the eastern United States whatsoever. And so it was just the media saying, we've got other things to talk about than a non-weather event. And so I, I, I'm just, that's that's where I am as as, because if I was a, a weatherman in New York City, and the news at desk had asked me about Aaron, it would be something that would be responsible for me, the weatherman, the meteorologist, to be able to present to the audience. It's not something that news would have to spend its its eight minutes, you know, addressing. I can do that in weather, and I can do it in 20, 30 seconds, and then, they, then the issue is covered. So I think if we had show archives, air checks of those particular days, I think we would see all of the local affiliates from from D.C., Philadelphia, New York City, Boston, Providence, you know, Raleigh, all discussing Aaron. The weathermen would do that. I don't think that it was was in need of the news departments to address it. I just thought if Hurricane Sandy caused this much damage and so many people were affected as a Category 1, imagine what a Category 3 could have done theoretically. And this is where I think we had this technology was a gift uh, with Sandy because Sandy's central pressure dictated that she would have been a strong Category 3 storm with winds between 120 and 130 miles per hour. Winds, as Sandy was making landfall, were no more than 85. So something kept this storm from realizing the potential that was, that was glaring us by that central pressure. That central pressure, we should have had Sandy onshore at 125 mile an hour winds, and we would have been facing 150,000 dead, not less than 150 dead. And so, I mean, it, it's another one of those, the storm is coming in, and I, I watched Sandy from about the day the models first saw her potentially turning in, uh, turning ashore, and it was an impulse that came off, off, off Russia. 
and I was able to start tracking it once it got to the far western end of the Aleutians. And from that moment that it came into my visibility, there were chemtrails across it hmm. from way out in the Pacific. I mean, worthy of hundreds of flights a day, that particular target was. And so whether it was something the Earth was doing in saying, all right, we've got to slap this nation back to reality, that this planet needs some attention. We've got to redirect possibly this election, redirect the American populace into realizing that the environment, the health of our environment needs to be number one in their minds. Because if we do not have a healthy environment, then what are you giving your children? What are you leaving your grandchildren? Yeah. What are you leaving you know, for, for the next decade? And this is something where our priorities as a nation, as a people, must be realigned. Our environment is that important to us, and we're throwing it away. I always say that we treat this planet as if we had another one to go to. <laughs> we don't. We don't. And until we learn to take care of this planet, I'm sure no other planet would want to welcome us. We're selfish children. As you say, we have to leave this planet in a better in a better position than what we have now. But going back to Sandy, I'm very curious, since you are the expert tonight, I'm not a meteorologist, but when I saw that hurricane going up and then going west and meeting a cold front, is that something that happens in nature? Yeah, it is. It, it, it just isn't very common. You know, it, it's, Sandy was, was going to offshore. It was not going to come inland. But if, if she's kind of entrained, I'm, I'm trying to think how to visualize this best. Let's say you have uh, a flexible tire, some circular, some circular formation that is flexible. Um, and you begin to dig on the back end uh, of a tire that's, say, rolling slowly forward. If you begin to pressure the backside, that is going to retard the forward movement of the tire. And you're going to begin to fold the energy back in. And this is why that impulse that came off the North Pacific was so utterly important. If that thing hadn't shown up, Sandy would be a non-event, just like Aaron. It wouldn't have been a weather event to impact this country. It would have been absorbed into the into the jet stream over the North Atlantic, and it would have been one heck of a rainer either over Iceland or somewhere into Europe. It would have been a non-event for this continent. So it was that additional impulse that essentially dug, dug out a larger trough, and as that trough dug, then the Greenland block amplified, and Sandy's forward motion was halted and then reversed. And it's just a matter of two whirlpools coming together and merging into one. And so it's all about timing. And this is where large effects, you know, eight, nine, ten days ahead of time, are, are just magnified as the snowball runs down the hill. Now, please explain the relation between, if you know it, the relation between HARP and chemtrails. Um, and I'm going to use HARP as a general tool or as a, gen, uh, as a generalization for all of the tools that are capable of manipulating the atmosphere, whether we're dealing with acoustic waves, whether we're going to deal with scalar waves, or whether we're going to deal with etheric energy. Well, we're just going to all blend that in and call it HARP, just for the sake of simplicity. Sure. Um, because they're, they've got a toolbox, and it doesn't have just a hammer. It's got a hammer, it's got a screwdriver, it's got a, uh, you know, a crowbar, it's got a ratchet. They have tools, and they all have a different place. But the primary tool for the chemtrails is the architect for the weather needs a rough draft of what the weather is going to do. 
And when you begin a rough draft, you start with sketches. You start with straight lines. And this is what the trails do. They are simply straight line sketches for where the atmosphere is going to, let's say, bloom or going to uh, be directed. So if I'm, say, in, in, or in the western states and the, the jet stream is, say, coming out of the northwest, they can line up these chemtrails going, let's say, west-northwest. And so there's just, a, say, a 20-degree offset. And so what they'll do is they start pulsing the atmosphere with waves that you can see in the clouds, especially on blue sky days when there's nothing else. There's nothing else but chemtrail debris. You'll be able to see these waves showing up. And so instead of that, that wind saying, uh, moving it uh, at a cardinal on the compass of, say, 120, then they can angle it to 100 degrees. So it's a little more easterly in direction. And that's, that spinoff then changes the shape of that trough. And you need these chemtrails, just like a rifle needs a gun sight needs a targeting mechanism so you can deliver your payload at the proper target. So the chemtrails provide them with a very long straight line, well at least it begins straight, to align their weaponry along. And then once the uh, the solution, the HARP solution, EM solution, scalar solution, organ solution, whatever, has been applied, how do you gauge the efficacy, the efficiency of said solution? You wait, run out another another graph line another grid across the sky. Watch how it deforms. That data then goes immediately into a weather model. A solution is generated. If they're happy with it, they'll leave it alone. If they're not happy with it, they'll figure out, all right, what do we need to do next? Run out the targeting uh, lines, apply the solution, wait. Run out another targeting line, observe. And so it's this constant surveillance, data gathering, data goes into model output. Uh, they're happy with it, so there's this, it's this constant surveillance, and the trails are exceedingly good at doing that. The National Weather Service uses balloons, radiosonde balloons. They're, say, on, on a rough estimate of 150 across the continental U.S. They go up twice a day. That's it. These guys have hundreds of aircraft leaving trails and dozens of spacecraft observing these trails. So we've got a weather service that is in the dark ages and a military-industrial complex that is in the 22nd century. And that's the disparity. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to tell you my biggest frustration, and I wonder if you've gone through this too. In doing this, I come in contact with many people who many of them are very, very open-minded, and they're interested in listening to anything that we have to say here. And we discuss, believe me, anything under the sun. But when it comes to chemtrails, I've had mm-hmm. these conversations with them. I could be outside at a barbecue, you know, with people who are defense contractors, who pe- with people who are hippies, you name it. They're all there. <laughs> and I point at them and I tell them, look at that plane, you know, and look at that other. They're going to start playing crisscross here. And they look at me as if I have a third eye. And after four hours that those planes came by, their trails are still there. And they look at me and they say, but why do you think they would be doing that? This is nonsense. They, 99% of the time, Scott, that's what they say. Why would they be doing that? Well, when, when you have that example, then watch where the trail crosses the older trail. Because I promise you, 
90, 95% of the time, you'll be able to discern. You will be able to see for yourself and then point out to the audience you have the attention of that the trail that the plane just crossed has a different character on one side versus the other side of that now divided trail. The powders will be drifting upward on one side, downward on another, left on one side, squished on another. It is that, those kind of deformations, how these powders, how these aerosols undulate or take shape in the atmosphere that gives them their information. And it's real-time information. It is, these planes are exactly where they need to be when they show up. I, I think there's, there's, so watch that. Next time you've got a day with lots of trails in the sky, look at the places where the trails cross. So often a plane will come along and slice another trail. And when it slices it, the left side will be blank. There'll be no other previous trail. But on the right side, there it is nice and bright. You'll see that they're interested in how the trails change over time. And how they change over time reveals the waves in the atmosphere, reveals places where there's more moisture, reveals where there is more, more life force or more organ energy. It shows those very, very clearly. And that's why the trails are so important to their work, because it gives them a level of accuracy that would make any other weatherman weep with envy, weep with envy. I keep mentioning to you how I discovered this, well, many, many years ago. I was sitting at a beach in Mexico by myself, and I'm looking up. This is the first time where it really hit me, because I used to think, you know, they're doing this all over the place. It could be to, you know, help global warming. But I was sitting on this beach by myself, and I knew the town is a square. The plane would actually go, and where the town ends, and there's nothing else beyond that, it would turn around and come back, and it would stay within that square. So obviously, it was not a commercial airliner taking yeah. people. Yeah. Do they spray over populated area mostly? I think... I'm going to rewind to yesterday, and I was watching them trail off the coast of uh, off of Florida, uh, north of the Bahamas. But it was dealing with with this uh, this nor'easter that's in place uh, just off the coast of Massachusetts uh, today, and and slowly moving into the Gulf of Maine. But what they were doing in Florida was to build clouds and to fill in this storm 1,500 miles to the north. So when they're overhead doing your work, it has absolutely nothing to do with being over your head. It is hundreds of miles downstream where it becomes relevant. Hundreds of miles. And so don't take it personally. Because what, <laughs> what, 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 what they're doing to affect you, for us in the western states, was done out in the Pacific. Where nobody is honestly below looking up. And so what happens over the open oceans is utterly grotesque. It's grotesque because nobody is looking. Now, why is it happening over the oceans? Is it because the, the, the wind will move it eastward? Sure, sure. I mean, California storms don't form over California. They form north and west of Hawaii. Yeah. They, they come off the coast of Japan. And so that's where the engineering is. If you're going to engineer a storm in Texas, you don't begin in Texas. You begin off of California. You begin over Arizona. You begin over Mexico. Mm. And so this is why they need access to skies globally. It's because this is a global program. And they need to monitor the atmosphere in real time, every bloody where, everywhere. Now we're going to go to the fundamental questions. 
Why? Why is this happening, Scott? Well, first of all, because they can. They can. Nobody has stood up to them and say, no, you can't. Um, what I'm curious about is what gave them the idea to do it in the first place. Mm. Where was where was the the intent? Who provided that intent, that concept, the idea? Where did that come from? That's what I would really like to know. And does this truly go back, I'm guessing, to the 50s? I believe these programs were, were gamed out, were inspired, were conceptualized in the 1950s as the military-industrial complex was getting their cojones about them, beginning mm-hmm. to collect power, beginning to collect secrecy, and dealing with an ET issue that was flooding them with intelligence and knowledge and ideas and, and technology. And so when, after fresh off of World War II, they're like, dang, you know, if we could have controlled the weather, then we could have secured this beach with, you know, 20,000 less lives lost. We could have done this, or we could have done this, or we could, we could, have, we could have done and when you think of the potentials, think of the ideas, and you're, you're, you know, for your four generals sitting in a room, you're, you're going to make this happen. You're going to get, bring the resources that were put behind the Manhattan Project, put behind you know, all of these other things to bring about World War II to a close. They've got to go somewhere. The money's got to go somewhere. The inventions have got to go somewhere. If we're not fighting a war, then we've got to be creating new weapons platforms, new potentials for us to use the next time we do go to war. And so I think a lot of this showed up in the 50s. And I think Eisenhower had a clue. Eisenhower had a clue. And he warned us. Mm -hmm. And Kennedy had a clue and tried to shut it down. And they shut him down first. And then we've been, you know, on, on, on cruise control ever since. That's right. And you, you mentioned the 50s. It, something tells me that this technology could have originated somewhere in perhaps Germany. And Operation Paperclip brought all those engineers and scientists here. Mm-hmm. And then with the Vietnam War, that's how they were spreading Agent Orange, you know? You know, they've got to have war, ongoing war somewhere, so they can test out these platforms, test out these technologies. You know, you just, you can't do so much in the outback of Nevada anymore. It's just, yeah. you can't go, you know, blowing dozens of bombs off. Things like that just don't sit well with the population anymore. You've got to have an ongoing war somewhere so you can play with these toys. And, um, and we're just closing down another decade of war. So uh, I, I, I think my... The oldest picture I've got of what appears to be chemtrails is spring of 1957. And so and this was out over the Adirondacks in, in, in southern New York State. So I think we've got, we've got a, a much deeper history, a much richer history of these programs than what has been accepted on the conspiratorial Internet. Now, the new term that I see a lot, it's almost as the, as the, the new accepted term, is persistent Contrail. Is that, yeah. the, 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 are they accepting it finally that this is happening and, and they're just blaming it on the weather? Well, I, I'm looking for another term too. You know, I, will, I know Will Thomas, at least to the best of my knowledge, he, he is the originator of this term. And I, it, we need another term. We need something that isn't, doesn't have this energy around it so we can, we can advance this in, into, the, into the global consciousness. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm using just the generic term trails. I just, I'm just calling them trails, trails, persistent trails. 
I'm leaving out the con, con part for condensation, and I'm leaving the cam out for cam. You know, I'm just calling them trails because that's essentially what they are. And if we can begin to demystify these things and explain why they're there, then the aha light goes on much, much quicker, much quicker. Because when I, when I was doing my early research, it was all about poisoning the population. There was, you know, blood particles. There was virus parts. And that may be true. But for somebody researching these things the first time, it's too much, and especially as a weatherman. It was too much. It was too much. It just, it was too much. And so I didn't like talking about it. So if we can get this back to trails and we can explain that those trails are out there to measure what the atmosphere is doing and simply by observing them in time-lapse imagery, it becomes stupidly simple as to why the trails are there. Well, that's a conversation I had with uh, Michael Murphy, whom you know, and mm-hmm. and uh, I was saying, you know, why don't you talk about A, B, and C? And he said, no, 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 we have to start Chemtrails 101 so people can get it. If you bombard them with everything at once, you're going to turn them off. And I think mm-hmm. the, the, the easiest thing to do with people is to differentiate. What is the difference? As a meteorologist, and I know there's a lot of people who are listening to us who say they are open-minded and they're still very skeptical about this. What is the difference between a jet contrail and a chemtrail, a condensation trail and a chemical trail? Yeah, vapor trail. Uh, we're, we're, We're burning kerosene. We're burning jet A fuel. And there's a hydro, a water, a hydrocarbon aspect to this. And so you're creating, you know, a blast of steam plus some soot left over from from the burning process. And those vapors should sublimate or be absorbed into the clear air, the dry air, very, very quickly. And even in blue skies, which is the situation here in Colorado two, three days ago, I mean, deep blue skies, we had 120-mile visibility, you know, off the horizon. That is incredible. And yet these trails were persisting. Little thin clouds were, were, were being laid out. And so simple, by simple observation, you're going to see most commercial aircraft will leave no trail at all. None. The engines are that clean. They're that efficient. With jet fuel as expensive as it is, these engines have got to be as good as they can be and run as lean as possible. Otherwise, these airlines are going to be bankrupt. That's right. So we, we need to have these clean engines. And, you know, we're, we're deep into the turbofan um, revolution with Pratt & Whitney, GE, and Rolls-Royce. These engines are very, very good. And every new iteration of aircraft, these engines get cleaner. They get more fuel efficient. And so I'm of the opinion that upper 90 percentile of all of the trails, even the short trails you see up there, are now not vapor trail. They're not condensation trails, but part of this chemtrail program. Because very rarely do I even see the regular commercial traffic up at 37, 39, 34, 36,000 feet. They're, they're high. And so much of what is happening weather-wise happens under 30,000 feet. And the chemtrails are working aggressively at 18,000 feet to about 31,000 feet. You have the commercial traffic largely above that. Um, occasionally, you need to run up these lines, you know, at those altitudes, but it isn't as common as the lower layers of the troposphere, which is the bottom layer of the atmosphere. And so, I, a, a vapor trail is simply that moisture showing up in the super cold air up above, and they fade away quickly. 
even in a prefrontal environment where you have uh, a warm front and a cold front or an extratropical cyclone, as we call it, advancing in on your area, that moisture is coming up um, on, on your location. You're going to have this serious shield developing. Um, a regular condensation trail could ignite a persistent trail, but that's rare simply because in this day and age, the condens- or the, the chemtrails, those persistent trails, outnumber the commercial fleet in those prefrontal locations by 10 to 1. At 10, least 10 to, to 1. 1. At least 10 to 1. Because <sighs> that is their agenda. And, and Mel, we can, we can talk about the different layers of energy. Meteorology is dealing with thermodynamics, which is heat and humidity. Moving heat and humidity across the globe, across the poles that are cold, the equators that are warm. You're constantly moving this heat and heat and moisture, this transport of energy from equator to pole and back back again. There's another aspect to weather, and that is the electromagnetic. This is where we get lightning. This is how we're able to suspend, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of tons of water in a cloud and for miles on end vertically. And and updraft is a part of it, but there is an electrical suspension that happens when clouds get going. Clouds do not bubble, clouds rotate. And when clouds are rotating, as we know with all of the electricity, say for photovoltaic created energy in this country, is all done by a turbine. Turbine spun by natural gas, turbine spun by coal, turbine spun by something that generates heat and spins a turbine dragging a magnet across wrapped wire. And so when these clouds turn, they begin to create a current. They begin to create electricity. And then this static charge builds and lightning will discharge, connecting the top of the atmosphere to the lithosphere, the crust of the planet. And even beyond that, there's another encapsulating energy. And that is the dark energy that astrophysicists are so pining to get a hold of, to understand and how to work into general relativity. That is the zero-point energy, the etheric energy that essentially runs all this. And so I'm, as I watch these chemtrails for the last decade, I'm seeing they're, they're creating these fine, fine particles. And where these elemental clouds show up, these sylph-like clouds, you know, as the energy begins to show up first in the, ether- in the etheric field, then the electromagnetic field, and then finally thermodynamically, they love to run these trails where that energy first begins to manifest. So we have energy that drives our weather first from the etheric to the electromagnetic, and finally to thermodynamic. There's three encapsulating spheres, and we have to understand how they all interface. And I believe chemtrails are also important at moving that energy across these membranes that separate these different energetic fields. And that, that, that's going to be a huge evolution when meteorology gets this. I'm willing to venture there. You're a fan of uh, Tesla's work. Am I right? Oh, how, how could we not talk about this without bringing in Tesla? <laughs> <laughs> that man was two centuries ahead of his time. Unfortunately, he didn't. He wasn't able to bring us up to speed. You know, if we hadn't had the banker types, we would have had free energy from you know ni- what nineteen ten, nineteen twenty on. That's right. It would have been a different world. It would have been a wholly different world. Since J.P. Morgan said, uh, "Sorry, but you can't meter that," so let's kill it, right? Yeah. Well, and 
he had a monopoly on copper for wiring, you know, as they're you know, running all these wires across this country. And exactly, if you can't meter it, we can't make any money off it. And that's the same reason why we can't get all of these inventors, their technology, so every house is on its own grid. That'll come. And I'm waiting for some president to have the balls to get it done. Someday you know, that'll it, happen. It's interesting how you see... Uh, how a, a monopoly is try is sustained. For example, in most cities, we had electric trains at one point in the United States and perhaps other countries, and they were the ones who took over were the rubber tires. They were the ones who wiped out all the electric trains. And when the car, Henry Ford and so, and the others wanted to bring the car, it was the horse breeders. Who were concerned that uh, you know that was not going to be a safe thing to do. Right now, we see the next one. I mean, who's with oil? With with let's call it what what, what they say it is fossil fuel. I don't believe they're fossil fuels. But no, they're not. <laughs> they're not. I mean, how many dinosaurs do you have to kill in order for us to continue with this? <laughs> All of them plus. You know, and, and then that that wouldn't explain why why the natural gas fields in the Gulf of Mexico are regenerating constantly. You know, this is, yeah, the, our understanding of petroleum is, is, is in it, well, at least our public understanding of petroleum is still in its infancy. I think they keep, they keep the scarcity mode on so that we believe that's always on the brink of, of ending. You know, I, we, we just got through this election and, and had the whole, you know, auto industry, you know, saving, letting go bankrupt and so forth. I had honestly hoped that it would have gone bankrupt. And in doing so, would have forced some other technologies, some other some other entrepreneurs to come forward mm. and and take the billions of dollars that are recycled into the auto industry into new technologies. I had honestly kind of hoped that would have happened, so that money would have been freed from flowing to GM and Ford and Chrysler and and Honda, and that they would have been forced to move beyond this paradigm. Um, and and maybe that was a pipe dream. But I was I was hoping that that opportunity would have been seized on by Tesla Motors or something else, because, my God, you know, we're 110 years into this, you know, and it's old, it's old, it's tiresome, it's exceedingly expensive for the environment and for everybody's pocketbook. We've got to have some uh, something else, We've got to have something else. We have done more in the last 100 years to to destroy the planet than in the last what? Ten thousand years. Yeah, and I, I, I think a big part of that is a function of a population and and media insisting that we consume. And I think uh, if we were to simply change the message, you know, I'm in Crestone as you as you announced at the top of the show. Yeah. It's a small community in Southern Colorado, and we have this marvelous thing as you come into town, and it's called a free box. It's a free box. There's the free box manifesto. Done with something, bring it to the free box, and then it goes to someone else. And because we don't have a Walmart, you know, nearby, we don't have all of those shopping uh, amenities nearby, we have a free box. And if every neighborhood in every city had a free box, we could probably shut down half the Walmarts in this country. We could keep so many more resources, so much more money in this country if every community had a free box. And when you're done with something, you don't throw it away. You don't store it in, in hopes that someday you'll pull it out and use it. You take it to the free box. 
And when you need something, you go to the free box. And so it's just a different way of thinking of things. And this is what's going to have to change in this country and indeed this world is simply how we think and approach satisfying our needs. Because, you know, there are solutions and Mel, they're elegantly simple. If we can just change how we think. And I think, I, I know we can do it. I know we can do it. But a free box. Certainly. That, that's a great concept. I, 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 I'm going to do more research on this and, and, and announce it even more. But, you know, I moved here to Arizona at late 96. In 97, I was flying and uh, with my instructor, uh, you know, a private plane. And then I was really hot. It was July of 97. I said, can we land somewhere? I just am too... It's too hot. So we <laughs> we landed on this airport called Pinal Air Park. And I said, you know, can we get out of the plane and get some water? And he says, absolutely not. If you, we can only do touch and goes here. If we get out, we'll be shot. And I said, what? What do you mean be shot? He says, look to your left. So I looked to my left. It was like, almost like an air, airplane cemetery. And there was uh, red smoke coming out of a plane and a bunch of people dressed in black coming in and out. And I, wait a minute, where are we? And he said, this is a CIA airport, and that's why we can't get out. I looked to my right, and I saw a bunch of evergreen 747s, one after the other. This is before I even knew about chemtrails. And not too long ago, I heard of a colleague, Roxy Lopez, who was brave enough to drive there and saw that that is one area where chemtrail planes take off and land. Have you heard that? Uh, a couple of times. A couple of times. I, I'm surprised then that you were able to do touch and goes. Apparently they changed that now, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious. Were all the paint planes painted up with the same paint scheme? Yes. Or were there of uh, varying paint? Okay, they're all the same paint. Very white. All of them very white. Some of them have very small insignia saying evergreen. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, and I have uh, a cousin whose husband... Now, we used to fly freight for DHL mm -hmm. and is now employed by Evergreen. Huh. And so I need to, uh, I need to open up some, some communications with him and see what he is aware of. Um, you know, the, 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 the simple number of planes I see trailing. Um, I, over this weekend, I saw C-17s and C-117s, you know, military transport aircraft, mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> Southwest painted up 737s, you know, in all variants, um, you know, Allegiant Air, American Airlines, British Airlines, KLM, Dutch KLM 747s, you know, all kinds. So I, I you know, I, I, there's got to be another place where you, where you can deal with, you know, a thousand planes in this country. And more frequently, I'm seeing smaller corporate-sized jets, Gulf Streams, Dassault Falcons, Cessna Citations, um, CJ2s. I'm seeing these, these you know, 1,000 to, to 2,000 payload, you know, type or capable aircraft, you know, that could still, you know, have a range of four to 7,000 miles. And they're rarely flying, you know, 500 knots. They're usually between 250 and 350 knots. Mm -hmm. So if they're slow then their range is going to be extended by probably a, a pretty good bit. And so they could be, you know, flown up, uh, be airborne all during the daytime and then be brought down at night. But that still has to happen somewhere. Why hasn't anybody gone up there and follow a plane 
because we never see them take off from anywhere, but we also never see them land. Has anybody gone out there and said, I'm going to trail this sucker and I'm going to follow until I have no more gas? Yeah, yeah, and see see where he goes. Yeah. Um, I, I'm sure that on radar that would be be noticed by the powers that be. And you would probably have a couple of um, mm. F-18s come up and, and you know be on your wingtips. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure that would happen. I, uh, I'm kind of growing of the opinion that these Lockheed Martin, these, these black triangle aircraft, um, that are big are simply aircraft carriers in the sky. Mm -hmm. And much of this can be done airborne. And many of these planes never have to touch terra firma. Um, I have seen when I was living in Fort Collins. Uh, in particular, these were Alaska Airlines flights come out of DIA and they would get to maybe 18, 19,000 feet and I could see, boom, the mixture goes right on. You know, they're too, they're too low. The atmosphere is not conducive to trailing and, and yet it begins. And they're, you know, I'm, I'm maybe 50 miles north of the airport and, you know, they've, they've gotten to some altitude by that point in time. But, you know, on comes the mixture. And so I know I know some of them are worked into the civilian flights, and if it only takes you know four or five six planes per hour to work into the civilian traffic, you know at, at Phoenix, at at San Francisco, at L.A., at Denver, you know at Chicago, at St. Louis, at New Orleans, at Tampa, at Miami, at New York, at Boston, at Providence, you know then you could you could manage a couple of you know couple of hundred planes, but it's still the ground ops. It's still who who does the refueling, who does who does this, and what gates do these planes pull up at? So, I've I've got questions. I've got questions. Since you used the word ET, and we, we mm -hmm. as you might know, we discussed this topic here. I didn't want to go there because I didn't think that you would want to go there. Oh, I, I have absolutely no problem going there. Good. Well, well, nobody's from Earth. <laughs> nobody's from Earth. <laughs> and yeah. you can certainly say that here and nobody's going to laugh at you but is I'm thinking of all these planes and I think of the you've, you may have heard this term breakaway civilization do you think that there may be an ET component to all of this absolutely and that's why I brought up the 1950s I think once once agreements were made in the early 1950s then they began sharing with us uh, aggressively so to get our military entrained into their way of thinking. Um, because I don't think we're aware of the ET endgame for Earth. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's kind of where political structure has been, has been kept in ignorance. And, uh, but a absolutely, I think this is where I was, why I was, I was questioning, what is the genesis for this program? Whose grand idea was this? You know, who decided to deploy billions, if not trillions of dollars to this program over the last 50, 60 years? You know, and I, I think those ideas uh, were ET in, in origin. I really do. I really do. To some people, this is going to be far out, and to some people, it may make <laughs> sense. But as I was saying at the beginning, we treat the planet as if we had another one to go to. But if we had one to go to, let's say Mars for sake of argument, and we knew that we needed to, uh, to change the atmosphere and to terraform in a specific way so that we could adapt the planet so that we could survive there, is there a possibility that chemtrails could be a way to terraform this planet for another species? 
Well, it, it's possible. I, I think it's possible. I think the biggest issue with uh, Escape to Mars is is our bodies and our 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 energetic bodies needing to be attached to human resonance. Mm-hmm. And if they're not capable of duplicating the human resonance on Mars, then it is it is merely a lifeboat and not a permanent outpost. Mm-hmm. And uh, we wouldn't be able to colonize the whole planet, but just localized areas. The other thing is maybe the sun is going to go through a change. Maybe this planet is going to go through a great period of upheaval. So what has happened with Fukushima, what has happened with Deepwater Horizon, what has happened to the alkalinization of our soils, our forest soils, because of the fallout from these trails, is just a small blip in the geological history of this planet, only to be reset by these upheavals, which may be imminent. And so whatever they felt they needed to do this to this planet will be simply overwhelmed by earth changes and great earth changes, which are not that far down the road. So they felt that they could sacrifice the biosphere for their agenda because it's all going to be reset anyway. It's a thought. What is their agenda in your opinion? Well, I think the biggest aspect is, is engineering our human consciousness. So we're not capable of participating in a choice as to whether humanity will be sovereign at the end of this cycle. And if we can't be sovereign, if we can't take care of this planet, can't take care of our own, then we need overlords. We need somebody to run stewardship while we're while we remain a subservient race. And I think that that is probably the larger agenda that overlays everything is that they want to remain in control of this planet. And, you know, so many people think that the human race were to be sacrificed. I tend to think we're the prize. I think we're the prize. It's just if we knew we were such a prize, we might stand up and, 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 and want to claim ourselves rather than, than, than being going through a whole another 26,000 year cycle subjugated to another what they believe is a, is a higher race. Mm-hmm. And so we're fed chlorine in our water. We're fed fluoride. We're fed processed foods. Our, our salt has the elements removed from them and so that it isn't assisting us. We're being gradually and slowly poisoned while we populate this planet to the point of distress. I think of this, if we continue to procreate and we continue to, to grow in, 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 in masses, then what is the purpose of poisoning the air, poisoning the water, poisoning the food? Well, I I think it's to weaken the race, and profoundly so. Mm. So we're not able to be in a place where we're clear thinking, where we can make decisions for ourselves. We're we're willing, weak-minded, not not to the the peak of our our game. And I think that's what's happening. You know, we're, we're profoundly obese. We're not physically fit. We're not capable of, see, if, if the work of Half Past Human and Farsight.org is correct, mm-hmm. next year will be monumental for Earth changes. Next year it begins. And if you lose the grid, if you lose the food supply, if you lose your, your, your ability to access petroleum to drive around, how are people going to survive? Most of them won't. And that's by design. So only those that have retreated 
to communities that are self-sufficient, you know your neighbors, you know your community, and you can all work together, those will be the little little oases in on this on this planet, in this country. And I think that's why society has been it has been greatly engineered to the way it has, is so that there is a die off. That way they don't have to kill us. We make those decisions so it happens to us of our own accord. So karmically they're not held responsible for losing six and a half billion people. So the Georgia Guidestones of a half a billion, 500 billion on this planet can come to pass. They can lay out the future. They can set the game. But we have to walk into the trap. And that's what we're doing. We're walking into the trap. And the less people they have, the more they can control us. And you mentioned something interesting, the Schumann resonance, which has been increasing in the past few years. Mm-hmm. And you also said, and mm-hmm. you said this, that we are not from here. Recently, Scott, I spoke with another researcher who said there was a scientist who made a, a, a few a few tests on people to see what our biological clock would be on, a, on one day. And our planet has a 24-hour cycle. As humans, we have a 24-hour, and I didn't know this, 24-hour and 37-minute cycle, which is exactly a one-day rotation of Mars. Isn't it that? Isn't that crazy? Yes. Yep, yep. And and some of us are geared to be morning people, and some of us are geared to be night people. Some of us, you know, we all have, you know, there's these children that are coming in right now. They are brilliant, old, advanced souls. They've come in here to bring their wisdom, their their light, their potential um, to the evolving human race and simply to overwhelm the old energy. And that has been, number one, the gift of, of the overpopulation is that it provides the bodies for these other souls to come in. But I also don't think they're, they're, they don't quite feel like they're at home yet, like their purpose has shown up. And, and so I think once we begin to go through these, these troubled times, these kids will shine. These kids will be brilliant and they'll be free of, they'll be free of the old constraints and free of their iPhones, free of their Xboxes, and they're going to have to perform. And I think they, they've been born with these gifts to greatly assist humanity in picking up the pieces after this, this reality begins to fall apart. But yeah, to 24 hours and what about 40 minutes for the rotation of Mars? 24 hours and 37 That's, minutes. Yes. Yep. Yep. I'm, I'm, We've probably had a few lives there mm-hmm. at some point in the past. <laughs> and Scott, yeah. we have to take our, our one and only intermission. But when we come back, we're going to get so much more deeper. I have a lot of questions to get deeper into this subject, to, which to me, I used to say it's in my top 10. It's in my top five because of the importance and because the powers that want to be are really demonizing Anybody who's researching this to the point, Scott, you probably know this, that they're saying that pilots, commercial airliners are concerned that those of us who are who are researching this topic, they're concerned that we're going to just have a handheld missile and shoot at them just to see what happens. <laughs> so we have to be very careful. How do people uh, become more exposed to your work and also Blue Water Alchemy? Well, you can, you can visit the site at uh, weatherwars.info. Um, you can find me on Facebook by searching Weather Wars. Uh, or, or, or Scott Stevens, and my, my email is weatherwars at gmail.com. And, uh, and we'll, we're starting the Twitter feed as well. It kind of consumes all the time. You, you, you get to try to deal with the social aspect of, of, of you know, an operation like this. Yeah. 
and then Blue Water Alchemy, where we can talk about solutions to, to the toxins that we're dealing with in this environment. And that's one thing I want to discuss when we come back, because we hear of organic food, but if these airplanes are spraying us everywhere, how is an organic farmer immune from that? When we come back, this is Mel Fabricas. I'm here with Scott Stevens, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening to the first segment of this interview. We will continue with segment two with our special guest in the Veritas member section. Just go to our website, veritasradio.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with segment two in the member section. Enjoy. One, two, three, four. Suffocation. Extermination. Intoxication. Tribulation. Human rights violation and devastation. Chemtrails, chemtrails, we will prevail. Chemtrails, chemtrails, we will prevail. Depopulation. Another fumigation What the fuck with the aviation Death by irritation Or just by asphyxiation Problems with respiration Mass sterilization Or just weather manipulation Chemtrails, chemtrails We will prevail Chemtrails, don't be afraid of the truth. Test your blood for barium and aluminum. Edward Griffin, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. 